Our scripture reading this morning is found in Hosea chapter 11. Would you turn there with me in your Bibles? Hosea 11. And let's stand together for the reading of God's holy word. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. I bit down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt. But Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities and consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over? O Israel, how can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord, he will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. May God give us understanding this reading and preaching through this text this morning. Let's bow together now in a word of prayer. And after prayer, a choir will come for a song before the preaching of God's word this morning. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come to worship. And as we come and worship, we thank you that you are the God of all mercies. You're the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. We thank you for the comfort that you provide, the hope that we have in knowing you, in trusting in you, and living by faith day to day with you and for you. Our hearts are burdened today, Lord, for just this community of believers here and the impact that life is having on us. We pray for the Ellie family and uh, just the just a challenge and a turmoil of Breon having to um, go away and move away to Texas. We pray, Lord, that you would just watch over that family, that you would comfort them, that you would help them to see you as they go through this separation and this difficult time. We pray for those who are suffering with sickness. We think of that which was mentioned this morning for Nick and Patty and 
their children, others who have suffered through the week with flu and different ailments. And we thank you for allowing some to be here today. And uh, we thank you for your healing and your protection. We thank you for healing, for surgery, for Duane. And we pray for recovery for him, that you'll continue to, to watch over and bless him. We thank you for Mac and for dialysis that he goes through weekly, that you provide and you strengthen him day to day, allowing him to be a testimony to others who are going through the same experience. We thank you for your grace, and uh, we pray for our families. We think of, of uh, Megan and for Aaron as a family, Lord. We think of Megan as she experienced some health issues this week and spend some time in the hospital. We pray that you would um, watch over her physically, that you would minister to her spiritually, so that you bring her to a right frame of mind to accept your will and to seek your counsel, to walk with you and to walk with your people. We pray for your grace as we come up against Resurrection Sunday that we will celebrate and that we would remember what we are celebrating and what Christ has done for us on the cross. And we pray, Lord, that as we prepare for this time, that you would bless those things that are being planned so that your word might go out in a special way. Those who would come would come. Those who are invited would come and that they would hear and see the gospel, that you would use your word and speak to their hearts and minister in such a way that those who hear the gospel might receive it and turn and be saved. We pray for the preaching of your word this morning, Lord, that you would give us understanding in your word, that you would challenge our hearts in it, open our eyes, and open our hearts to you, that we would turn from sin, that we would see your love and be drawn to it, and that we would repent and turn, walking in obedience to you. And so we pray for this local group of believers that you would work in mighty ways in us so that you are magnified and you are glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. God is so rich for us, ministers to our hearts, helps us see God in, in clarity, in, in better clarity. And in Hosea, we see God. We see in this chapter his longing for his people, his tender compassion, and his love for his people. Look at the words that are used to express his relationship with his people in verse 1 and verse 3 and 4. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. The first word, child. When Israel was a child. 
God the Father is saying Israel was his child. Just a small, beautiful, helpless child. Then he uses another term, son. Not just anybody's child, but my child, my son. God looks at his people as belonging to him. He uses a family term to express. We see relationship that is defined there and terms of relationship that are used to express God's reaching out to us as to Israel, his son. Look at God's action towards Israel. He says in verse 1, he loved Israel. Loved is in the past tense, not because it doesn't exist, but he's thinking back. It's like the good old days when Israel was a child and they weren't, they, they were a young child. They were too young to rebel then. They weren't the rebellious teenager. They were the sweet little baby and young child. He loved them then. He loves them now. Israel is an expression of God's people, and it's an expression of us. He loves us now. He says so. I loved him. God is not afraid or ashamed to express his love for his people. He says, I called them. That word called has, has a, a redemptive quality to it, is that when he called, he's not just shouting our name. Called is to bringing us into an existence. He's ordering us to himself. And so it's his call that really starts our motion towards him. It starts our salvation that we are called by God. We use the term both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we are elect. In other words, God chose us and then, then did the thing that was necessary to bring us to him. It's almost like the, the word in, 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 in God's um, uh, in creation, that he created us. He spoke us into existence. He called us to a relationship with himself. He reminds in verse 1 that Egypt was called out of something. And that something, or that some place in this case, was Egypt. Israel was called out of something, called out of Egypt. Egypt is a, a picture of slavery, of bondage of cruel treatment. It's a picture, therefore, of sin and what sin does to an individual. It enslaves. It mistreats. It treats badly. It takes something to deliver us from that, and God is the one who delivers. He has delivered his people, Israel, out of something, out of a reading in Genesis earlier this morning in my devotion is how... God told Abraham that his people were going to be in this place, in this, in this land that God had given them, but they would be under bondage for 400 years. 400 years. But after that, God would deliver them. He delivered them out of Egypt. How soon 
does Israel forget that it is God who delivered them out of Egypt? All other words that speak of God's action are picked up again in verse 3. It says, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. He's recalling those early days in Israel's youth when God was with them every step, literally, of the way. He taught them how to walk. He taught them as they developed and as they grew. He taught them those things that was necessary for them to live. In verse 3 says, he took them up by their arms. That's a beautiful picture. One of the ways that I see dads display their tenderness and their compassion, especially towards their young children, is they grab them up and lift them in the air. Children, children like that, they, they know that they have the full support of strong dad. He's carrying me. He's got me. He can throw me in the air, but if he does, he's certainly going to catch me in a gentle way to bring me back down. He took them up by their arms. In verse 3, it says, he healed them. He did not know that I healed them. I watch a parent, a mother with a child, and the child slips on the floor and scrapes his knee, and the mom goes over, and, 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 and she just does her little thing with that knee or that elbow or that thumb or whatever scraped, and before you know it's a Band-Aid that goes on there. That child knows that that feels good. It just feels better when a Band-Aid's been placed on it, especially when mom or dad has done it. It's a healing that happens. God says, it was I who healed them. In verse 3, they didn't know that I healed them. Verse 4, he continues these same actions that describe his love towards Israel. He says, he led them with cords of kindness and bands of love. Led them with cords of kindness and bands of love. I suppose that's probably in contrast to a yoke that you would put on, a, on an animal. So on an animal, you would put a yoke. A yoke would be very restrictive. It would be heavy. It would take some adjusting to. But he says instead of a, a, a strong yoke, a yoke could be made out of wood. It could be made out of metal. But it was something that bound that animal to the task that you had for it to do. But a cord was a little softer. It was something used to train, kind of like a leash, a gentle leash. He says, I led them with cords of kindness and bands of love. I think of a cord as, as just that. And, and a band, I kind of think, in my mind, I, I, I have the image of a bungee cord, you know, uh, something that has a little give to it. So you're making sure that whatever's on the other end is not going to be yanked and pulled and damaged. He says, cords of kindness and bands of love. And then in verse 4, he says, I bent down and fed them. I bent down to them and fed them. When you're bending down, there's, a, there's this, this visualization of being a, a humbly, being humble to care for someone else. He bent down so that he could care for them, to feed them, to give them what they need. 
These are all expressions of God's great love to minister to his people. But how does Israel respond to this love? In verse 2 it says this, the more they were called, the more they went away. In other words, calling is, is God showing his favor. None of us deserve to be called. The more favor God showed them, the more disrespect they showed God, the more they dishonored God. In verse 5, the last part of that verse says, they refused to return to me. In verse 7, it talks about their bent. The Bible often uses that term, and it's, it's an expressive term. My people are bent on turning away from me. Something that is bent does not travel in a straight path, and it, it, it never can travel in a straight path. It's, it, no matter, you keep pushing it, it keeps going left. It keeps going left. It keeps going left. We understand that. I was walking into a store yesterday, went to the Walmart, and, you know, you go get a shopping cart, and you, you do the same thing. You grab the shopping cart, and you first wheel it out. Is it going to roll right? I'm not going to be lugging this thing all around the store if, if those wheels are stuck and jammed and it ain't rolling right, or one is kind of going like this and crazy. Y'all do the same thing. You get that cart, and you push. You want that wheel to roll freely and easily. Israel was like a wheel that's bent on going left. You're trying to go straight and it's steady turning left. That's how God describes them. They were bent. In other words, they, they, they had this just natural tendency to do wrong. That's how we are as human beings. We don't do right. We have a natural tendency to do wrong. He explains the consequence of that in verse 7. My, pimp, my people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. When we turn from God and we're bent from, from, from following him or bent on doing our own thing, we think we can pray. It, it gives me the impression that even though they were rebellious, they were still religious. They still wanted to pray. And so he, he explains this, though they call out to the most high, they're bent on doing wrong, but they think they can offer prayer to God. They think they can worship, and they think they can ask something of God. Isn't that amazing? But it explains the people who don't see themselves for who they are. And he says, what's the effect of that? He should not raise them up at all. God does not respond to the prayer of those who turn away and think they can request something of God. He doesn't. He doesn't respond. In verse 12, the first part of that, he explains another part of their rebellion. He says, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. Lies and deceit. Again, it, it kind of pictures that twofold hypocrisy that they have. They act like they are his people, but they really lie. They seem to be doing something that's right, but really inwardly is deceit. 
for God describes the rebellion of his people. Sometimes that rebellion is a quiet rebellion. I've always been amazed as a pastor. You know, people can stomach preaching, but they can't stomach very much. Rebellious people can't stomach pastoring. That is when you minister to them personally and apply the word of God to them individually in their own life. It's all right when I'm standing in the pulpit and speaking to a group, but when I speak to one and say, wait a minute, this applies to you. And here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to be aware of. He says deceit and lies. They, 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 as part of that rebellion. I, I, I picture it as, as what I call a rebellion with a smile. People act like they're willing to do what God calls them to do, and they smile but until they're challenged personally, and then we see the realness of who they are. He says deceit and lies is part of that picture. And we see Israel's rebellion, and notice how this contrasts with God who loves them. God has this tender love, and yet they have rejected that love and rebelled and gone against him. So far, we've seen two parts of this chapter. We've seen the tender love of God. We've seen the rebellion of God's people. The third part is God's discipline. The Lord disciplines his people. And we'll see that in three verses, in verse 5, 6, and the latter part of verse 7. God disciplines his people, verse 5, 6, and the latter part of 7. He says in verse 5, They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. First part of this discipline I see is that they will be given no help or protection. They'll be given no help or protection. He says here, they shall not return to the land of Egypt. Now, that's a confusing phrase in Hosea, or it could be confusing, because what does it mean? There are places in Hosea, we're going to look at a few, where he says they will return to Egypt, and right now he says they will not return to Egypt. So what does it mean? Will they return to Egypt or not? What? What, what, what is he saying here? Look at chapter 7, verse 16. I'm in Hosea 7, verse 16. It says, they return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Mentions Egypt there. Something about them being in Egypt. In the next chapter, verse, chapter 8, verse 13, it says this, As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. Notice there, saying they will return to Egypt, right? Let's continue on. In, in chapter 9, verse 3, it says, They shall not Remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. So we wonder, what, what, what is he saying here? Again, in chapter 11, verse 5, it says, they shall not return to Egypt. 
Well, in these verses, verses in chapter 7, verse 16, chapter 8, verse 13, chapter 9, verse 3, Egypt is a reference, is a symbolic reference to foreign powers. He's saying Israel is going to be dominated by a foreign power. Egypt is that reference. Egypt is that symbol of a foreign power. We can naturally see how that would be. It's because in Egypt is where Israel was held in bondage for over 400 years and God delivered them from that. It's a foreign power that held them in bondage. You can, you can especially see that in, um, in what we looked at in chapter 8. Oh, chapter 9, verse 3, they shall not remain in the land of the Lord. God is, is the, uh, the Hosea is prophesying what God is going to do. They're going to be removed from their special land. And what's going to happen to them? I'm in Hosea 9, 3. Ephraim shall return to Egypt. They shall eat unclean food in Assyria. It mentions both Egypt and Assyria here. In other words, some foreign country is going to lead them, take them out of their land, and he'll hold them captive in another land, in a foreign land. It's Egypt and Assyria are mentioned here. So Egypt is symbolic of the foreign power that the prophet says is going to dominate and rule over Israel. It's not a reference to a literal deportation to Egypt in these passages, but just a reference to a foreign power that's going to take over. Israel. But in chapter 11, verse 5, there's a different, different thought. In chapter 11, verse 5, it says, they shall not return to the land of Egypt. He's using Egypt here because, if you remember, Israel had tried to play Egypt against Assyria, one against the other, and they were expecting to to find help in Egypt. They were, uh, uh, they were uh, expecting to find support in Egypt. They were expecting to find someone who would deliver them from their enemy. He's saying here, you won't find refuge in Egypt. You're not going to find an ally in Egypt. Look at 11.5 again. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. You're trying to flee to Egypt to find refuge there, but you're not going to get it there. Instead, this other king, Assyria, is going to come, and he's going to take you over. So in this section in, in chapter 11, God is showing them his discipline that they will have no help and no protection. Because they didn't seek help in the Lord, they sought help outside of God. And he says, you won't find it there. It's interesting that we today often look for help in so many ways besides God. Ways that could be helpful to us, but apart from God, won't be. They could be in our finances. They could be in health. The doctors and the medicine and the treatments. 
They could be in all those ways. But if we don't, we, if we aren't in, in that seeking the Lord, God says you won't find it. You won't find the relief and the help that you need. In verse 6 of 11, it says, The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. He says, destruction is determined against Israel. And in verse 7, he says, My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. They'll be given no deliverance when these foreign powers come to invade their land and to destroy them. God wasn't going to step in. He's announcing his judgment to his people. And we've seen that often, haven't we, in Hosea, that God is saying, because Israel has sinned, God will judge them. But I want to bring you to, I think, the most remarkable section in Hosea in this following verse. In verses 8 through 12, he has just finished saying that God's judgment is going to come. They won't escape it. God is not going to deliver them when the hard times come. They're going to experience that. But then he says this in verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? God is lamenting. What his people are about to go through. And he says, I don't want to do it. I think he's saying even more than that. He's not saying, I don't want to, to, to lay my hand on you as I discipline you. He's saying, in essence, I refuse to utterly destroy you because I love you. Look what he says. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? Now I wonder, who is Adma and Zeboam? Let's take a look at that. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 16. If we look at this, I think it's very instructive for us. There's two things we're going to get out of this. this. The second thing we'll get is who Adma and Zeboam are. But the first thing we're going to get is how God warned his people before they even got in the land of how they needed to be faithful and trust him. Remember Deuteronomy, remember the, 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 the context that that's written? God has led his people by Moses out of Egypt, right? And they've come to the brink of the promised land. Moses was rejected from going into the promised land, but he was one who had brought them all the way up to it, and he's about to hand over these people to a new leader, to Joshua, and to, to encourage them to in the Lord. And so Deuteronomy really is a sermon from Moses saying to the people, look what God has done. He's been faithful to you. Serve him faithfully. Obey him, and you will be blessed. That's the whole thing with Deuteronomy. And so at the end of that, he's warning them not to turn away from the Lord. Look at verse 16. We're going to read a few verses here, so stay with me and, and just focus as, as we look. You know how we lived in the land of Egypt, 
Moses is speaking here. You know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. That's a pretty straightforward warning, isn't it? Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Last week we looked at those agricultural terms that Hosea used to express uh, the impact of Israel's sin on itself. He says, beware lest there be a poisonous root. A root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Verse 19, one who, when he hears the word of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. That's where Hosea is talking about their deceit and their lies. I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Again, Moses uses that agricultural term. He says, hey, this, this, this fertilized field is going to turn into a desert when you turn away from God. Verse, 19, verse 20, the Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. And the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in this book of the law. And the next generation, your children who rise up after you, and the foreigner who comes from a far land will say, when they see the affliction of that land and the sickness with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing, where no plant can, can sprout and overthrow an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma, and Zabom, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done this to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then people will say it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshiped them gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land. And they are this day. It's amazing that Moses wrote that before he even got in the land. He says, warning to Israel, if you turn from God... God is going to bring about the judgment that is spoken of in this book. And he says, you're going to end up away from this land in a foreign country, dominated by a foreign country. Verse 29, the Lord uprooted them. In, in verse 29, he's going through what the foreign nations are going to say as they look back on God's judgment on Israel. 
Now, we came to this to look at that. We wanted to look at two things. The God's warning to his people before they got in the land. The second thing we wanted to look at, get some insight of, of who Adma and Zeboim is. We found that in verse 23. The whole land burned out with brimstone and salt. Nothing sown and nothing growing. Where no plant can sprout. An overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim. So who is Adma and Zeboim? Well, let's look more into this. Look at Genesis chapter 10, verse 19. Genesis chapter 10, verse 19. You got some time to walk through with me, don't you? You got nothing else to do? Genesis 10, 19. I'm just going to look at a few verses. Genesis 10, 19, the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboam as far as Lacia. Now the thing we're going to note there is it's described as a territory and it's described with two other cities that we are very familiar with, Sodom and Gomorrah. All right, let's look at another reference, also in Genesis, chapter 14, verse 2. I want to read verse 1 and 2. This is about Abram and Lot. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Chedor Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goem, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. So he's describing this war that's about to break out four kings against five kings. And these five kings are the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboam, and Zoar. Those are the five. Go down to verse 8, that same chapter, Genesis 14, verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim. What we see here is that Adma and Zeboam are always associated with Sodom and Gomorrah because they're in that same area and they were totally destroyed. In other words, these were two other cities that were in the same region with Sodom and Gomorrah and they were destroyed. This is part of God's judgment. Go back to Hosea now. Hosea chapter 11. I want you to pay attention because there's a remarkable truth that's spoken to us in this passage. Verse 8, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? 
How can I hand you over, O Israel? How, Israel, how can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. We know what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah, and now we understand with those cities associated, Atma and Zeboam. God is saying to Israel, you break my heart. I, I, I can't treat you like Sodom and Gomorrah. You're my people. I can't do that. I cannot utterly destroy you like that wicked city that I took off the face of the planet. God is saying, here, here's, here's the, 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 the keen spiritual truth. God's discipline for his people is fundamentally and categorically different than his judgment for those who are not his. I'm going to say that again. Let that sink in. God's discipline for his people is fundamentally and categorically different than his judgment for those that are not his. God is saying to Israel, you deserve to be wiped off the map. He says, but I cannot bear to do that. He did it to Sodom and Gomorrah. He did it to Adma and Zeboam. And he keeps bringing them up as places that do not exist anymore. They ain't here. The people ain't here. The place ain't here. It's wiped clean. God destroyed them. And he says to his people, Israel, how can I treat you like that? I, I can't. I can't bring myself to do that. Here is a great picture of the love and compassion that God has for his people. Turn with me in the New Testament. It helps explain this. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? That's key. Sons, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. From this passage and from Hosea, there are four important truths that we need to understand. The first is this. God will surely discipline 
his people. He will surely discipline his people. Notice how it's spoken of in Hebrew. Do not lightly regard the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. The one he loves, he says, he disciplines. God guarantees he will surely discipline his people. We need to know that. We need to not try to spin that in any other way. God will discipline his people. You belong to God and you are walking in a way that is not pleasing to God. God is not looking the other way. God is going to deal with that. He's going to chastise you. He's going to spank you. He's going to discipline you. That's the first truth. The second truth is this. God disciplines with a tender heart. He disciplines with a tender heart. Now, that's, that's good news. The first one is good news, too. We just don't always realize it. <laughs> and, that, and that is this, that he's disciplining us because we are his people. But we'll get to that. He disciplines us with a tender heart. It says, for the Lord disciplines what? The one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. To be disciplined by the Lord then means that he's expressing this because he has relationship with you and he will not allow you to keep straying far, far away from him. He's going to bring you back to himself and he's going to use discipline to do that. It says further, Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. But what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which, we, we, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. He's saying if you weren't God's, then he certainly wouldn't discipline you. But because you are his, he will discipline you. He will reprove you. He will chastise you. When you go astray, when you go into sin, he's going to follow after you and challenge you and, 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 and discipline you to bring you back to himself. That discipline doesn't feel good. When I got whoopings, I never got a whooping I liked. That felt good. It doesn't feel good. It's not supposed to feel good. Parents, you should take a note from this. There's a role of discipline here. But notice, it's done in love. God disciplines the ones he loves, and he does it in a loving way, and those two are compatible. They go perfectly together. God will certainly... Discipline his people. God disciplines with a tender heart. And the, set, the third point is implied in all this, but it's certainly a fact of Scripture. God's people respond to his discipline like sheep to a shepherd. They respond to his discipline. In fact, you can see that in Hebrews in verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. In Hebrews 12, 7, it says, you have to do it. He says, in other words, I'm encouraging you when God responds this way towards you for, you for you to endure it 
And that's, that's that characteristic of a true believer is that he doesn't run from God. When God disciplines, he responds to that discipline and turns his heart to God. You see, there's two things that happen. God towards his people and God towards those who are ungodly, those who are not his people. To his people, he disciplines. To the ungodly, he judges. And there's a, there's, a, there's a categorical, fundamental difference in the two. A spanking versus the death penalty. See, the reason why I spanked my children, I don't do it anymore, of course. They all grown and got their own kids. But there was a time and there was an age when that was appropriate. It was appropriate to, to gear them in the right direction as a young tree to brace them. And when they leaned over the wrong way to pull them back by discipline to keep them on that right path. And then a time when you let them go and they're on their own. But the grace of God has allowed that discipline to play in their life so that they grow straight. The other option is not discipline at all. Just let them have their own way. They grow this way. And what happens is they grow into a mature tree and they can no longer be straightened. Now they got to be cut down. Not just trimmed, cut down. And that's the judgment of God. So to be disciplined is to be treated like one who is in relationship with God versus the judgment that is treated like one who has no relationship with God. Romans 8 one says, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no judgment for us in Christ Jesus because Christ has paid our judgment. But what we do get sometimes a little spanking here and there. And that is a loving thing to keep us from the death chair. That's a loving thing to keep us out of prison. That's a loving thing to keep us from being dominated by Satan. God says, I don't want you living that way. My folks ought not to have chains on them. They ought not to be slaves to sin. I'm going to discipline them. I'm going to reprove them. I'm going to draw them to myself. This is that sanctification process that God uses in our lives. But he certainly uses it. He certainly disciplines his people. He certainly does it for their good. He does it in a loving way. And then that third point we made is his people respond to it. His people respond. In fact, that kind of determines where you are. <laughs> if, if you've gone the other way, you know, John 10, 27 says, My sheep, that's the shepherd Jesus talking, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. They respond to my call. They respond to my voice. They respond to my instruction. They respond to my command, and they follow me. Now, they're not perfect. They can stray sometimes, but what he says, I'm a shepherd. I go back and get them. And when I go back and get them, they come with me. The sheep respond to the shepherd. One that don't respond to the shepherd are the one that don't belong to the shepherd. Jesus in John chapter 10 gives this picture of, of shepherds who have a common fold, and all the sheep are in that fold. And when the shepherd comes in, he calls his sheep from that fold. And they come from all the other ones and they follow him. His sheep hear his voice. 
He has a call. I don't know what that call was, if it's a whistle or a yell or some noise or chirp or whatever, but he will call them and they will come. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. The sheep respond to the shepherd's chastisement, correction, and discipline. They realize the shepherd does that because he loves them and wants to keep them on a path away from destruction. And then the last point, I said there's four points that Hebrews and both Hosea teach us. The one is that God will surely discipline his people. God, God's discipline is an act of his tender love for his people. The third point is that God's people respond to that discipline. And the fourth one is, is shown both in, in Hebrews and Hosea, and that is this. God lovingly anticipates and expects repentance. Let's go back to Hosea and see that. Verse 9, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst, I will not come in wrath. Amazing statement. I'm so thankful that God has a loving, tender heart for me like this. Because there's times when I can act like sinful Israel. There's times when you can do that. And God says, I'm going to discipline you, but I'm going to spare your life. I'm going to do this for your good. And look what he says after that. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his, his children shall come trembling from the west. There's three pictures. The lion roaring. His children trembling, returning. You get that picture? The lion roaring. There, there's a couple images there. The lion could be roaring as, a, as an act of his warning to show his might and his power. He can actually be roaring as well to identify himself to his children. And whatever he's doing there, his roar causes them to do two things. To tremble and return. To tremble and return. He says tremble twice here. Look at verse 10. He says, these children shall come trembling from the west. Verse 11, they shall come trembling like birds from Egypt. Egypt, again, is a picture of the foreign power that has taken over Israel. He says they're trembling. That's a picture of their humility and their repentance. They tremble now at the voice of God. They don't turn away from it. They don't turn a deaf ear to it. They tremble and respond to God's voice. Then he says this. They shall, verse 11, they shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. Remember he uses that picture of doves. He says, he says my people are, are, like, are like stupid doves. Remember that? And they've gone into Assyria, but now 
after I discipline them, those who are mine come back, trembling like doves from Egypt, from Assyria. Verse 11, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Are you being disciplined by the Lord? It's a fearful thing, and it's a good thing. It's a fearful thing because it's, it doesn't feel good. It's painful. It hurts. It's a hardship. It's inconvenient. <laughs> Sometimes even embarrassing. But are you being disciplined of the Lord? The one, he, how should you respond? How are you responding to God's discipline? If you're being disciplined by the Lord, then you recognize he's showing you that you belong to him. And he's doing that to pull you closer to him, not to push you away, to pull you closer to him. How are you responding to God's discipline? Let me suggest to you how you should respond. Some appropriate responses to God's discipline. One would be this, is to weep. <laughs> I've seen few folks give spankings. <laughs> You know, when I, when, I, when I give illustrations, I should tell them myself, but I choose to tell them my brother. I had a brother who got a spanking, and he would get a spanking, and he would determine that he was not going to cry. He was not going to cry. He'd just be like, whatever. Let me have it. Now, you know what that is. That's an act of stubborn rebellion that says, I don't care what you do to me. I'm going to act like it don't hurt. Even if it kills me, I ain't going to give you the pleasure of seeing me being broken down. I ain't going to do it. Some of us act like that. It's a fearful thing because it's not the sign of a believer. To rebel against... God's act of correction. So say we should weep because <laughs> it hurts. <laughs> we should weep because we've humbled ourselves to realize we deserve it. We're in line for that. It's not more than what we deserve. It's right in line. It's administered by a loving and righteous God. We ought to weep because it's painful. And others can weep with us when we have a right attitude. But you know, you're not, you're not too much going to weep with the guy who's saying, I ain't finna cry. But the one who breaks down and says, yes, I realize I deserve, I've done wrong, and I've deserved 
And in fact, I'm thankful. So after we weep, weep, we rejoice because we realize God is thanking me because I'm his. Because I belong to him and he's doing it for his godly purpose. He's not doing it just to, just to, to have fun today as a pleasure trip for him or as a power trip for him. He's doing it for my good. So after I weep, I need to rejoice. That's an indication that I am still God's. I belong to him. There's another thing I need to do is repent. Repent means to turn from sin and to turn from God. So when God has disciplined me in my life, I need to repent. I need to humble myself and say, God, you are God. You are Lord. I should obey you. I don't tell you what to do. You tell me what to do. I am under your command. I'm your servant. You are Lord. And I repent. I turn from, I identify the action that I did, that it was wrong. It was unpleasing to you. It was, it was, it was within me because of my sin. And I, 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 I admit my wrong and I turn from it. I repent. And then the thing we ought to do is what God anticipates is we ought to return to him. Look how God anticipates this. He says this in verse, verse uh, uh, um, 11. They shall come trembling like birds. Notice, from Egypt. Not going to Egypt, coming from Egypt. They're moving in the right direction. I like that. Like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. So when we repent, we put ourselves back in the Lord's hand and his control, and we do what he's asked us to do. And we come back to the Lord. We come back to the place where God has called us, the place. You know, you can see a person's repentance, not when they, they say, yeah, well, that's, you know, I'm, I'm obeying the Lord, but I ain't coming back. Then you're not really obeying the Lord. God says, I want you to return. I'm going to put you back in a useful service as you humble yourself to me. God's tenderness, his love. He says, I cannot treat and I will not treat my people like those who are disconnected from me and have no relationship with me. But I will discipline them. And I long to see their repentance and their return. I'm looking forward to that, God says. See in verse 11, they shall come. I will return them. He's stating this before he sees any sign of repentance in them. But he says it's going to happen. I'm looking forward to coming. It's kind of a picture, remember, in Luke 15, the prodigal son. The father is looking <laughs> for the son to return. He expects that son to return. And when he sees him, he rejoices because he anticipated that. God the Father is looking for us to return to him. He didn't spank us to send us away. He disciplined us to bring us to himself. 
Father, I pray that you would speak to the hearts of your people today. They will be assured of your love, even in the midst of discipline. They will recognize how you have restrained your judgment from us and you have given us instead loving discipline. It's not pleasant, it hurts, but it reminds us that we are still yours, and so we're thankful for that. I pray, Lord, that you would see humble hearts here today, hearts that are ready to turn to you, to acknowledge in, the, in a humble way sin and wrong, and ready to turn back to you and to return to you. I pray that you speak to our hearts and help us to see how you long for that response in your people. That we might give that to you. Open our eyes to those areas where we need to apply this truth in our lives, in our homes, relationships, in our dealings with each other, husband to wife, wife to husband, children to parents, parents to children, believer to believer. That we might have that response that is pleasing to you. Speak to our hearts right now, Lord, and bring us to a weeping, a rejoicing, a repentance, and a return. In Jesus' name we pray.